Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me online throughout the week at my Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows on pod, as podcasts on your favorite podcatcher like iTunes, Stitcher, uh, and Spotify. Okay, so I wanted to start tonight with an update. Uh, There are certain stories that I continue to follow because they're interesting, and I hope that you also find them interesting. So this is another update on the possibility of there being a new ninth planet orbiting far out in the solar system. And so a new object called 2015 BP519 has an elliptical orbit around the sun that is between 35 and 862 times the radius of Earth's orbit. It also orbits at a 54 degree angle from the plane along which all of the other known planets orbit the sun, give or take a few degrees. Um, And so an international team of scientists from the Dark Energy Survey found the object and have modeled its movements in a new paper which has been published on the Archive Physics preprint server. Now, according to the paper, it's the, quote, most extreme trans-Neptunian object found to date. Now, this object, again, was found using data from the Dark Energy Survey, and that is actually probing the acceleration of the expansion of the universe. And it's actually studying a region that is in the, at a steep angle from the plane of the solar system. So they weren't expecting to find any objects that were in uh, orbit around the sun that far off of the plane where all of the other planets are orbiting. So, of course, um, you probably remember, I hope, that within a few degrees, about six degrees, all of the planets are traveling around the sun on the same basic plane. You could sort of you could sort of draw a, a straight line and they would all be almost on that as they circled around the sun. And of course, that's partially uh, or mostly because they would have initially formed from the dust cloud that surrounded the sun. And so it would have had this same uh, rotation and thus the planets were formed in the same plane. And so what happened is they found this weird object out in the middle of nowhere. And what they did was, again, they were modeling it. Uh, The team was led by University of Michigan grad student Juliet Becker. And they realized that in order to really be able to understand this orbit, they needed an object to be added to the calculations in order to explain the extreme orbit. And they found that adding the assumed orbit of planet nine that has been uh, speculated actually made the calculations work. The second you put planet nine in the simulations, not only can you form objects like this objects, but you absolutely do, said Becker. Now, there are several caveats. First, this is an early release of the paper, which has not yet gone through the peer review process. It's also based on the assumption, uh, which we cannot currently prove uh, and may never be able to prove, that there weren't 
potentially other objects in the early formation of the solar system that might have knocked that object into its strange orbit. So we do, for instance, know that there are sort of rogue bodies that do uh, cruise through different solar systems. In fact, there is an asteroid that is uh, skimming past Earth as we speak, uh, pretty much. That is was a surprise. Um, and I think that that is actually a solar system object, but there are occasionally objects that come from outside of the solar system and do pass through. And there are objects that do that in other solar systems uh, throughout the various uh, galaxies. And so it's not impossible that there was a body that knocked this particular uh, rocky uh, object out of the plane that everything else orbits in. But if you add Planet Nine, it works really well. So <laughs> we're not quite sure. And so one of the things about that is that it actually confirms a specific prediction by Konstantin Batkin and Michael Brown, who are uh, astronomers at Caltech, and they're the ones who originally suggested that Plan 9 is actually out there. It's not proof that Planet 9 exists, said David Gerdes, an astronomer at the University of Michigan and a co-author of the new paper, but I would say the presence of an object like this in our solar system bolsters the case for Planet 9. Now, one of the things that finding Planet Nine would actually do would be to bolster the idea that predictions can be used to map onto reality. And so Gregory Laughlin, an astronomer at Yale University, noted that if it wasn't in our solar system, if the stakes weren't so high, I think that the hypothesis would almost certainly be correct. It's only the fact that it's so amazing that tends to give me pause. And he further noted that finding definitive evidence for the planet for Planet Nine would be pretty exciting. Uh, he notes that it would be it would be this dramatic confirmation of the scientific method, which would be pretty refreshing in the current age where the truth is on trial. Now, uh, one of the other things that I do want to talk about before I move on and speak of another uh, story about the truth being on trial, uh, I did read just uh, the other day, um, actually earlier today, about the fact that there is a new kerfuffle about whether or not Pluto is a planet. And so uh, some of the lead researchers from the uh, from the recent orbiter that went out to Pluto and uh, actually did all of that amazing uh, New Horizons, which did all of that amazing work, that they are now, uh, after having analyzed all of the information on Pluto, they are once again pushing the fact that Pluto should never have been demoted and that it is the true Planet Nine. Um, and so they uh, actually have a new book out and it's called Chasing New Horizons Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto. And so, of course, as you do when you have a new book out, they're doing sort of uh, pitching for it. And so uh, there was a uh, opinion piece in the Washington Post the other day uh, by uh, 
Alan Stern and um, David Grinspoon, both of who were involved in uh, New Horizons, obviously. And they basically, the title of it was, Yes, Pluto is a Planet. And so they are a little bit upset about the fact that it has been demoted, especially since it was demoted just as they were getting to be able to actually go there. Um, It was demoted before they had actually had this information about the planet. And so one of the big arguments that they have is about the idea that it that a planet has to clear its local environment. Because as they argue, that would mean that all of the planets that we actually consider planets for the first, you know, million years or so uh, would not have been considered planets because they were still working on clearing out completely their orbit. And, you know, there are other issues too. And so what they consider to be the most important thing is really just a very simple idea. And so what they think it should be is round objects in space that are smaller than stars. Uh, And I'm not sure that I feel that that's the way to go either, because that would then uh, create a lot more objects that are potentially uh, planets, though, you know, a lot of them are slightly off of round. um, And you know, there, there are a lot of weird, lumpy uh, objects out there, especially out in the Kuiper Belt region. So they wouldn't necessarily, if it was round as a part of the requirement. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I was kind of okay with Pluto uh, being demoted. I think that especially since its moon Charon is almost as large as it is, is and since they uh, basically orbit each other, uh, I'm I'm not sure that I buy the idea that Pluto really should be considered planets, um, or should be considered a planet. And again, this would then add things like Ceres and Eris uh, to the list of what might be considered planets, and it might also actually then mean that some of the moons of, for instance, Jupiter would become uh, planets by that very, very uh, broad definition. And so, yeah, I think that for now, uh, Pluto is not going to be going back to being a planet. And I would say that I'm okay with that. I don't have any particular uh, belief that Pluto has gotten some sort of raw deal. I think that Pluto was miscalculated, uh, was misclassified when it was originally discovered, uh, because of course it was just so far away that people could barely see it and barely figure out what it was, but it was big enough that they could see it. So they figured it must have been a planet. And so, yeah. Uh, and that's that's one of the things that um, Ethan Siegel, who is an astrophysicist, uh, argued in a piece in Forbes uh, at the beginning of the month. And he said, the simple fact is that Pluto was misclassified when it was first discovered. It was never on the same footing as the other eight worlds. The 2006 move by the IAU was an incomplete attempt to repair that mistake. And so he notes that 
the geophysical definition is a step in the opposite direction. It's a step towards making a larger, more confusing mistake that will render a definition meaningless to the majority of people who use it. And that's the idea that it's any round body. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's definitely... <laughs> it is definitely one of those things uh, that is going to continue to have people spar over. But I think that I do definitely come down on the idea on the side of Pluto not being a planet. Uh, I really don't know why we're continuing to try and fight about this. That doesn't mean it's not a really cool thing. It's a really cool object. And, you know, those pictures that came from New Horizons were just amazing. And it's so amazing that we have been able to go to this planet or at least send a probe to this planet, planet toyed. Now I'm now I'm saying it to be able to send it to Pluto. Uh, I, you know, old habits die hard, obviously, uh, to be able to send something out there and actually take these amazing pictures. I mean, when Pluto was first discovered, it was just this tiny smudge on a uh, on a telescope, and that was it. And so it's really cool that we've actually been able to go out there and find out what it looks like, because we literally didn't know until we really got out there exactly what we were going to find. And so, yeah still not a planet. <laughs> Even if I might uh, slip up and uh, say it by mistake, it is still not a planet. <laughs> okay, so let us now actually move on. Uh, and so I wanted to talk about this because the first part's really interesting. The second part's kind of depressing, but we'll we'll move on to other things afterwards and it'll be okay. I promise. Now, I generally, of course, don't like to talk about climate change. I just, it's one of those things, I don't like to talk about it because it's scary and big and not getting any better. And I just, you know, I think that there's plenty of places where you can hear about climate change. And I've only got one hour, uh, or actually like 50 minutes every week. And so I, I don't want to focus on that. And uh, I apologize if people would like to hear more about this. Uh, I can recommend places to go to read about it. But here I just I would prefer to talk about other uh, sort of more quirky and interesting things than the possible destruction of the human race, you know. <laughs> uh, but I thought that this was really interesting. And so it's actually the first part of the story is about a study of climate change denial internationally. So as you're probably pretty aware, there's a fairly consistent connection between conservative views of climate change, uh, between conservative views and climate change denial, as well as between climate change denial and, well, conspiracy theories. <laughs> uh, and that is pretty true here in the U.S. But Australian researchers from the University of Queensland wanted to see if this was true for the rest of the world. Now, unsurprisingly, one of the motivations for the research was, of course, the 2016 election in which the majority of Republican candidates expressed open skepticism about climate change. 
I was intrigued why of the 17 candidates who campaigned to be the Republican nominee for the 2016 United States presidential campaign, many were openly skeptical of climate change, said co-author Professor Matthew Hornsey of from UQ's School of Psychology and School of Communication and Arts. This mainstream rejection of climate science among a major political party was not evident in other countries, which raised the question, is the tendency for conservatives to be more climate skeptical a global phenomenon or something that's distinctly American? And so what they did was they surveyed over 5,000 people across 25 countries. And what's really interesting is they found that in three-fourths of the countries surveyed, there was actually no significant correlation between conservative thinking and climate change denial. However, in the remaining fourth of countries, there was. And what they found in those countries was that they all featured high levels of carbon emissions. One possible reason is that conservatives in countries with high carbon emissions have more of a vested interest in rejecting climate science due to the fossil fuel industry's investment in that country, explained Hornsey. Now, the correlation remains highest in the U.S., but other countries such as Australia did have that connection. And so the researchers suspect, again, that it is a common denominator of, uh, well, basically propaganda from the fossil fuel industry. Not only propaganda, but, you know, the fact that if the fossil fuel industry is an important part of your economy, then you're more likely to, uh, you know, want to pretend that climate change isn't a problem. And so the authors go on to say, this suggests that ideological barriers to accepting science don't emerge from people spontaneously critiquing scientific consensus through the lens of their worldview. Rather, ideological barriers to accepting science can also be encouraged by influential individuals and organizations who have a vested interest in communicating that the science is wrong. And so this is a pretty big thing to think about. Uh, and, of course, the other thing that they did look at was the connection between climate change and belief in conspiracies. And again, in the U.S., there is a very strong correlation between the two. But again, in other countries, they didn't find a link. And it wasn't even a strong link in the countries that had higher fossil fuel admissions. And so it's really interesting and of course, this was uh, the the idea for this was based off of the uh, sort of infamous Donald Trump tweet, wherein he said uh, that basically uh, that climate science was a hoax created by the Chinese to make U.S. manufacturing uncompetitive. Uh, and so, yeah, which is, of course, completely and utterly ridiculous and doesn't really even need anything else to be said about it. Um, but I really think that it's interesting to find out about this because uh, I kind of want to know what is it about the U.S. that makes it more susceptible to uh, conspiracy theories and that link to climate science uh, or denial of climate change, I should say. Um, and I think that, you know, obviously, there is the influence of corporations and other propaganda sources. Um, and I think that in America, we are in a uniquely, uh, probably 
uh, unfortunate position wherein we do live in uh, what is more reasonably described as an uh, oligarchy at this point rather than a democracy or a representative democracy. Uh, and so we have all of these corporate interests that basically control our uh, governments and our media. And so they are very much in control of the messages that people get. And so it is very easy to distract people with weird conspiracy theories and uh, to convince them perhaps that global warming isn't real and are able to really shape our um, experience of the world a lot more than in other countries. And of course, it doesn't help that this next study, uh, <laughs> it turns out that part of the problem is that we just aren't teaching climate science in schools. And so if you don't have any basis in understanding climate science, you if you don't get that in school, and then you hear that, oh, you know, scientists are just uh, making it up, or there is definitely uh, arguments between scientists about whether or not it's real, despite the fact that 97% of climate scientists believe that anthropogenic climate change is absolutely true. Uh, and so, yeah, it's it's bad. Uh, <laughs> so there was a rather dire report. Uh, it found that most undergraduate science tech book, textbooks published between 2013 and 2015 basically avoided talking about climate change altogether. Of 15,000 pages examined, less than 4% contained information pertaining to climate change, global warming, environmental issues in general, or renewable energy solutions. Um, and so bio biology books were the most likely to have information, but that information averaged only about 2% of the entire text. And even when found, it was found generally in the final third of the book, which again decreased the chances that students would find it. Because I don't know about you, but I was certainly in classes uh, as a uh, undergraduate where we didn't get to the end of a textbook. Uh, you run out of time, uh, you know, in history class in high school, you know, we, I think, I don't even think we made it to the, uh, to the Korean War. <laughs> um, and so it's just, that's just the nature of the beast when it comes to uh, education. And so uh, the study concludes that the relatively few pages devoted to these topics calls into question how well educational materials for introductory level science courses provide exposure to the pressing societal issue. And of course, lacking such information in our textbooks, it's no wonder that only 58% of Americans think climate change is caused by humans, with a whopping 30% thinking it's simply down to natural variation. The terms we included were not just limited to a keyword search, but also involved going page by page through each of the textbooks, said PhD student and co-author Rachel Yoho. We looked for related topics like any applications and discoveries related to fossil fuels and renewable energy technologies like wind and solar. 
And so chemistry and physics books, when they contained any information at all, tended to focus on renewable energy technologies rather than the idea of climate change as a whole. There's so much information to cover in a short time. However, our students are facing these issues inside and outside of the classroom, said Yoho. Our communities feel the impacts of our energy decisions and climate. And so this is a big problem because it's hard to make arguments about the science of climate change when few people have even the most cursory understanding of the science of climate change. Uh, And of course, finally, we come to the third part of this, which is uh, that it does not help when members of our House of Representatives, uh, and especially the House of Representatives Science, Space, and Technology Committee, assert things like rocks falling into the ocean cause sea level rise. So, uh, Representative Mo Brooks unsurprisingly Republican, Alabama, noted that every time you have that soil or rock or whatever it is that is deposited into the seas, that forces the sea level to rise because now you have less space in those oceans because the bottom is moving up. (sighs) So uh, very valiantly, uh, Philip Duffy, uh, president of the Woods Hole Research Center, and former senior advisor to the U.S. Global Change uh, Research Program responded with, I'm pretty sure that on human timescales, those are minuscule effects. Brooks also brought up the fact that Antarctic ice was growing. Uh, He said is, but that trend has stopped. There was just a few years where that was happening. And in fact, sea ice at both poles reached a record low last year. And of course, Brooks seemed unwilling to accept the idea that the trend had stopped. Apparently, someone at his local NASA research uh, outpost had told him that this is something that's happening, and he is going to believe that person rather than uh, the expert brought in to tell him about these issues. Fine. (laughs) Uh, Representative Bill Posey, uh, Republican Florida, resurrected the old canard that scientists in the 70s believed the Earth was cooling. Now, researchers have pointed out again and again that this was actually fringe science in the 70s. And it was actually only done in about, um, it was only actually in a few popular articles. It was not in uh, mainstream articles at all. There was this famous uh, Time magazine uh, cover that I think is actually a hoax. I don't even think it's a real cover from the 70s. I think it was made up by um, a think tank, a conservative think tank, but don't hold me to that. It might actually have been real, but the scientists at the time didn't actually believe that. Uh, He also asked, and this was a real Uh, groan-worthy question for me personally. He asked how it was that carbon dioxide could be captured in permafrost before humans existed. Duffy patiently explained that this was from non-decayed organic matter. And then, of course, Posey uh, suggested that global warming might actually be good for humanity, that it was just the Earth basically... uh, 
reasserting its uh, proper temperature and that, you know, the earth's been warmer before and, you know, there were animals that were able to survive. Uh, and of course, Duffy pushed back against this ridiculous suggestion, pointing out that, for instance, if we continued in this vein without mitigating any of the uh, CO2 that we are putting into the atmosphere that, for instance, his community at Woods Hole uh, out on the Cape would cease to exist because it would be inundated as sea levels rise. And it's just very frustrating to watch this. Uh, I couldn't get through the whole thing. I sort of fast forwarded to find the highlights. Uh, and, you know, the big thing is that these representatives are either completely ignorant of the science or are specifically lying or asking leading questions because they are in the pocket of industry. Now, I suspect it's probably a little bit of both uh, or a lot of bit of both. Uh, it totally could be a lot of bit of both. Um, and so it's very disheartening. Uh, but there is a little tiny bit of a silver lining, uh, just at least, you know, a bit of uh, someone actually putting out kind of a, uh, a bit of a, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Anyways, uh, so Representative John Culberson, uh, Republican Texas, actually has added an amendment uh, to a spending bill restoring $10 million to NASA's Earth Science budget for a, quote, climate monitoring system that biochemical processes, oh, so that biogeochemical processes to better understand the major factors driving short and long-term climate change. Now, what's good about this is that it is almost identical to the work that was being done by NASA's carbon monitoring system, which the Trump administration had quietly defunded recently. Now, that's not to say that this will actually survive, because, of course, this is a bill that was in a committee, and uh, it now needs to go to the full House of Representatives, then it has to go into the reconciliation for uh, figuring out what the uh, actual uh, budget is going to look like, but at least a Republican made an effort to uh, put back in some money for this important work, because it is extremely important work. We can't know how to combat climate change if we don't know what we are putting into the atmosphere. And we can't know what we're putting into the atmosphere if we don't have monitoring systems. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's incredibly upsetting. Uh, and this is why I don't like to talk about it and why I get flustered. Um, but you know, we can only do what we can do. And, uh, that's why I would prefer to speak about other things, <laughs> uh, in this time that we have together, because I think that, uh, it is more fun to talk about sort of weird and wonderful things uh, a lot of times, though, you know, obviously I don't shy away from all of the sort of unfortunate uh, stories. Now, uh, let us first stick with something interesting. Uh, so speaking of NASA some more and uh, space some more. 
It actually looks like data collected by the Galileo probe more than 20 years ago actually uh, lends credence to the idea that there are giant jets of water that have been sprouting Uh, spouting more than 100 miles off the surface of Europa. Now, Europa is one of Jupiter's moons, and it has long been suspected to be one of the most likely places to find life in the actual solar system. And so Europa almost certainly has a warm, uh, salty ocean hidden below the icy surface. And so um, if you see pictures of Europa, it usually looks like a sort of dusty gray. And then there are all of these little sort of Uh, rust colored fissures and so that's ice that is sort of being broken up and uh, forming and reforming because of tidal forces with Jupiter which is why they suspect that the uh, ocean beneath Jupiter is probably fairly warm because it is uh, heated by that energy of those tidal forces And so in order to confirm that there really are those water plumes erupting from the surface, NASA and the European Space Agency both plan probes to head out to the moon in the early to mid 2020s. So NASA will send the Europa Clipper and the ESA will send the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. The idea that Europa might possess plumes seems to be becoming more and more real, and that's very good news for future exploration, said Jian Jia, a space physicist at the University of Michigan and the lead author of the new paper on the phenomenon. And so, yeah, that is pretty exciting. Uh, I am certainly looking forward to the idea of more probes being sent to Europa. Now, uh, of course, Europa is one of those places where we dream of someday being able to uh, sort of drill through the ice and get to that ocean. Um, Unfortunately, right now, that's not a possibility uh, because the ice is basically almost all around the planet. It's probably around 15 miles thick. And uh, we don't have anything that can drill that far yet. Uh, I've seen some sort of concept art of things that could be used that have sort of heating mechanisms to kind of, uh, you know, to melt the uh, probe's way through the ice, but uh, nothing so far has actually been proposed that is uh, something that seems like it will actually be able to be engineered and sent to Europa anytime soon. Uh, So unfortunately, I fear that that is not something that will happen during uh, my lifetime, uh, probably not your lifetime either. regardless of how old you are. Um, But I'm hoping that someday in the future, people will be able to do that. And maybe there really are uh, crazy and wonderful things waiting to be found in that ocean deep below the ice. Uh, That would be pretty amazing. Okay, now let's move on and talk about another Uh, crazy new paper. So there's a lot of weird science this week uh, and a lot of interesting things being proposed and people being cranky about uh, planets being demoted and uh, stuff like that. And so this was a paper by actually a team of 33 authors, which blows my mind. And it suggests that octopuses might actually be from space. 
Yes, there is a serious but extremely speculative paper that was published recently that suggests that octopuses are actually space aliens. Um, And they suggest that they would have either come to Earth as frozen eggs embedded in an icy meteor, or the authors alternatively suggested that the Cambrian explosion, uh, which was a result of the was the result of an extraterrestrial virus that crashed to Earth, again, in a meteor impact. Uh, and so, for instance, they suggested that uh, that virus might have infected early squid, uh, which would have then evolved into octopuses. Now, one of the things that they sort of based their argument on is the idea that, well, octopuses have a lot of very interesting uh, and unique properties. So they have a complex nervous system, they have camera-like eyes, and they have this incredible ability to camouflage themselves. And what they suggest is that none of these uh, traits are actually found in any of the, that in any of the antecedents of octopuses and so they don't understand how they could have evolved these things if they aren't shown in earlier animals. But of course if you uh, are a regular listener or if you know anything about sort of the fossil record especially you would probably know that the vast majority of things that have lived on this earth have not been fossilized and we probably only know about a small percentage of all of the things that have ever lived on this planet uh, because those things did happen to fossilize. But there is absolutely no reason to suggest that because we haven't found any antecedents with any of those uh, traits that they never existed. It's simply that we have not found them. And beyond that... (laughs) Uh, there are a ton of other good reasons why this is really just a silly, silly idea. Uh, (laughs) And so, yeah, Um, the authors themselves first do note that, uh, again, they say it is plausible then to suggest uh, that these traits seem to be borrowed from a far distant future in terms of terrestrial evolution or more realistically from the cosmos at large. <sighs> now, other researchers, unsurprisingly, uh, do not think that this is plausible at all and have actual science to back up their skepticism. There's no question early biology is fascinating, but I think this, if anything, is counterproductive, Ken Stedman, a virologist and professor of biology at Portland State University, told Live Science. Many of the claims in this paper are beyond speculative and not even really looking at the literature. So, for instance, Stedman reported that the octopus genome was actually mapped back in 2015, and while there were some fascinating revelations, they found that the nervous system genes of squid and octopus only split around 135 million years ago, which is much later than the time frame of the Cambrian explosion. He also noted that for a virus to have been the catalyst for the evolution of squid into octopus, it would have been had to have evolved on a world that already had squid with equivalent genetic makeup to earth squid. 
Uh, so, for instance, citing RNA-based retroviruses, he explained that they have evolved to be specialists, only infecting specific hosts. And so, again, it would be unrealistic to suspect that a virus from outer space would be able to infect an Earth-based animal. And that an alien retrovirus is certainly not specific enough for something like a squid, unless you have massive amounts of squids on some planet incredibly close to us that is spitting off all of these meteors. But I think that kind of assumption is highly unlikely. <laughs> uh, so while octopuses are weird and wonderful animals, they are very much Earth-based organisms. Now, we do need to take a break, but uh, we are going to come back and we're actually going to talk about octopuses for another minute um, because I want to talk to you about their ability to create uh, quasi-articulated joints. Uh, trust me, it's more fascinating than it sounds. Uh, so hang on for just a moment while we do some PSAs and show promos. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. When you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash C-E-T. Drum and Bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10, Saturday nights. Spring and summer are prime time for ticks that can spread Lyme disease and other infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like to remind you to wear bug repellent when outdoors, shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check your whole body for ticks every day. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. Wednesday nights, you might tune in to the warm heart of Africa to hear the funky, sinuous rhythms of Afrobeat. Or the pulse of Algerian rhyme music. 
or the desert trance of Tuareg blues. Or Township Jive from Johannesburg. Or catchy Sukus beats from the Congo. Those are just a few examples of what you might hear from 7 to 9 every Wednesday night right here on Valley Free Radio. Join me, your host, DJ Vinyl Scratch, on the Warm Heart of Africa, a celebration of African and Afro-Diaspora music, culture, and history, delivered with a groove. Okay, we are back. And like I said, I did want to talk a little bit more about octopuses uh, because they are really weird. It is absolutely 100% true that octopuses are just completely and utterly uh, as close to actual aliens as you will get for animals that were absolutely and 100% uh, or I should say 99.99999% uh, assuredly have actually evolved on the earth. Uh, they are very weird. They have all sorts of weird things about them. And this was one that I hadn't known about before. So I thought I would share it. And so um, you may have noted, if you've ever seen an octopus do a crazy thing, like completely and utterly uh, turn itself into just basically a straight line in order to get through a very small gap or uh, to compress its entire body in order to get into a small jar or et cetera, et cetera, that they don't really have uh, joints in the way that you or I do. And uh, so they actually do, though, have the ability to form what are uh, temporary sort of quasi-articulated joints. And they do this especially when they're eating. And so researchers found that when eating, the muscle activity in octopus limbs, uh, which are not tentacles, by the way, as much as I would like them to be tentacles, uh, the eight uh, arms of an octopus are either arms or uh, legs, depending on uh, what you want to say. Um, but generally, the the term used is arm. Um, and so uh, they are actually able to have this uh, muscle activity that moves in two waves and it flows towards each other. And when those two waves meet, uh, a joint of sorts is formed. Uh, and they actually do this three times when eating. So they first create uh, a pseudo shoulder where their arm meets the actual body. Uh, they create a wrist wherever the suckers that have grasped their food uh, are located along the arm and an elbow of sorts somewhere between those two joints. And uh, this allows them to adjust their joints depending on where their food is located along the arm. And uh, again, just another one of the crazy and weird ways in which octopuses uh, are completely unlike us and yet totally like us. Uh, and this would actually be a pretty good example of um, the idea of convergent evolution, uh, where you have something that has developed a... Uh, something that is analogous um, to what sort of humans and other mammals and other creatures have, but they would have 
developed it independently. Uh, and so basically, this happens a lot where nature, there, there's a pretty simple solution to something. And so nature just kind of does that. Uh, and, you know, with the laws of physics and biology and things like that, you're going to come up with the same solution every once in a while, uh, and perhaps not more than a lot more than just every once in a while. Uh, so there's a lot of places where we see that sort of convergent evolution where uh, two evolutionary trees have come to the same point. Uh, and so it's very interesting. And again, it's a show. It's a uh, sign that octopuses are absolutely uh, Earth-based creatures. Um, so yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so I did want to shift gears again and talk a little bit about uh, the world of medical science and uh, the new reports about Ebola uh, that have reemerged, that Ebola has reemerged in Africa. Now, um, I think that even though this might be really concerning, I think that it is, it is okay uh, at the moment because um, there is a, uh, there is a, possibly a way that we can we can keep this under control. Of course, I do want to take this moment to note it, to note though that uh, in case you weren't aware uh, that it is basically kind of an open secret uh, in this nation that we are woefully unprepared for an epidemic of any real proportion. Uh, so our ability to respond to outbreaks of infectious diseases uh, is woefully underdeveloped. And in fact, uh, one of the people who was in charge of that in the uh, Department of Homeland Security was just uh, sort of fired slash uh, left recently. And um, they said they were restructuring things. But basically what they did was that they took someone who was already in charge of a bunch of things and added this onto their list of duties, which is terrifying. Uh, and so, uh, but all of that aside, uh, I'm not too worried about this outbreak yet um, because we uh, have some new tools in our arsenal. So it is centered in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And so far, there have been 41 cases and 20 deaths. Now, the problem with diseases like this is that researchers must be able to trace everyone that is infected. Um or that infected people have actually come in contact with. And so what happens is that if someone is forgotten, then it can prolong the outbreak. However, uh, if we're able to sort of keep on track of that, uh, there is a new wild card in the game. And so back in December of 2016, the World Health Organization uh, concluded a test of the V920 Ebola vaccine. Uh, and they showed that of 12,000 individuals who were vaccinated in Guinea, none contracted the disease, while 23 people in the control group did. And so doses of the vaccine are being shipped to the capital city of Kinshasa. Now, uh, it is being produced by Merck, and uh, it is not yet technically FDA approved. But because this is Ebola, and we do have uh, sort of loopholes for this sort of thing, it is being supplied under the um, uh, compassionate loophole rule, basically. And uh, so the first people to get it will be healthcare workers and those who have already been exposed to carriers. Uh, and so that should help immediately to sort of uh, keep 
it from spreading too much because in large part, uh, a lot of the people who got it in the last uh, outbreak were, of course, health workers because you're right there working with the people who are dying. Um, and so it, there will be serious logistical issues. Uh, this is a country that is not, uh, has a lot of rough terrain and uh, keeping the vaccine at a temperature that is most ideal for it. Uh, it is actually, it, the ideal temperature is between negative 76 and negative 112 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so pretty darn cold. Uh, but I think that if they are able to overcome those logistic issues, this will play a pretty big part in the new outbreak. And hopefully we will be able to contain it. Uh, and so hopefully... Uh, we were able, we'll be able to take this terrible disease and move it from basically sheer terror uh, to treatable and perhaps to someday extinct. So that would be exciting. Okay, uh, we have a few minutes left and I did want to get to this story because I have to admit it does kind of uh, make me happy to suggest that the uh, time might be running out for uh, Bitcoin. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about this story where uh, we had been talking about, of course, climate change. And part of that is the issue of energy consumption. And so uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies require computers to run complex calculations in order to make their systems work. Uh, and so there's a lot of peer-to-peer -peer and there's all of these incredibly complex uh calculations being done all the time. And so basically, people have these banks of computers running this blockchain uh, calculation all the time. And so a new estimate uh, suggests that the Bitcoin network could be using up to 0.5% of the entire world's energy consumption by the end of the year. Now, once that happens, it will almost certainly start to be too expensive to continue to mine for most people. And so a new commentary in the journal Jewel by Alex DeVries, a financial economist and blockchain specialist, suggests that at the low end of the scale, today's network uses 2.55 gigawatts, or just under what, what is consumed by the entire country of Ireland. By the end of the year, if things continue apace, it will rise to 7.67 gigawatts, or just under what is used by the country of Austria. Now, this isn't the first time I've heard about this. Uh, I've seen documentaries on Bitcoin that make the problem very clear. Um, and there are places that are sort of trying to fi figure this out by using like windmills and, and all sorts of crazy things. Uh, there's basically a place out in like Montana or Wyoming that is just chock-a-block full of Bitcoin miners. Um, but, you know, it is going to become really hard. Now, of course, that will not completely create, uh, or that won't completely kill the market. Uh, there will still be some unscrupulous miners out there, uh, people who continue to mine even after the cost-benefit ratio ceases to be profitable by simply doing things like stealing energy or processing power from others. Uh, so there was one person who used their university's uh, computer system in order to make a bunch of uh, money off of Bitcoin. Uh, and so, you know, it's there are still bad actors that are going to be out there. Um, 
but it's a serious issue that we need to address. Um, you know, I think that something this heavy in uh, energy usage should be regulated. Um, you know, I definitely don't think that cryptocurrency is the future. Uh, and especially since it is so energy intensive, I think that we really need to either find a way to limit that or we need to uh, put some serious stops on this uh, cryptocurrency uh, phenomenon. Uh it makes me think about the fact that Bitcoin basically is a new gold rush in all ways. Uh, in fact, uh, including the environmental degradation that comes with such a uh, rush on any commodity. Okay, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, I will be back next week with more things about science and skepticism. And uh, yeah. Have a great week, and please do stay tuned for Civil Politics. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.